go ahead and invite Tom Thomas DeMoss to come forward and to share with us as we uh, are in the middle of a capital campaign and seeking and listening some as we think about the future, as to think about what God has done. And so uh, we are having some of our own to share. Why are they here? And what is it that God is doing in our midst? Good morning. So Robert said four to five minutes, so I'm going to kind of seal Jenny's joke. And for those of you guys who know me well, I always have a lot to say, so 45 minutes should be fine. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting how God works things out that we actually had a baptism just a minute ago because the first verse that I actually have here is Proverbs 22, 6. And Robert just mentioned it. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That verse means more to us today than it did five years ago when we actually um, started coming to HPC. When we decided to look for a church home, a new church home, we only had one child, Colin, and he was one year old. We were new parents. Uh, we really didn't have any idea of what parenting was supposed to look like. Um, but we wanted to find a church that we could raise our children in that would come alongside us to reinforce what we wanted to do at home. Um, we also wanted a church that Cindy and I could grow deeper in our own faith. And um, we wanted a church that believed and taught the reformed doctrines that we had grown to embrace. Um, our, our story is, is very interesting, I think. Um, when we were looking we, we really wanted to find a church home for life. So we didn't want a church shop. So Cindy was very diligent. She um, Actually, we found out about HBC from a friend. And once again, we were looking for a reformed church. So Cindy went online and listened to about a year's worth of Robert's sermons, um, to her credit. So, <laughs> but we were looking for <laughs> consistency. <laughs> Um, so he passed, passed the first test, um, but, <laughs> but we were, we wanted something, we wanted a pastor who was consistent to the scripture that was faithful to it. Um, during the, the week, uh, I had a few minutes of time, so I just actually drove up here kind of on a whim to check out the church facilities, and the first person that I actually met was Cheryl Cutter, um, you know, I just walked in and said, hey, would you mind showing me around, uh, and she did, was very gracious, very kind. Um, it, it already gave me a sense that this was a place where we wanted to be, just, just from that initial visit. Um, after that, our interview process, we invited Robert to our house. Um, it was the summertime. I think it was hot. So we, uh, we sat on our, our porch. Our, our home at that time was in Stonewall Farms, and we put him through what I think was a pretty extensive interview process. Um, which he passed with flying colors. We, we left, um, or he left, I don't know what he thought, but we were actually very encouraged. And um, so we actually decided to visit. We visited HBC in June 2011. Um, I mean, it was, it, we were warmly greeted. It was a great time. I, I don't think I've ever left on a Sunday morning and not been blessed by just the people, the message, the songs. Um, but that first Sunday after the service, Kathy Napier was the first person to come up and just greet us. And once again, we were 
overwhelmed. Um, I see Mike Payne, I think, came up to me, and uh, we started a discussion about Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and then when we left, Tom Runkle asked me about dispensational theology. <laughs> so after that, we didn't visit any other churches. This was it. Um, we were living in Stonewall Farms at the time, and we did not know that the church owned the property. We found out that they did own the property uh, next door, and that seemed to confirm our decision that this was the place that God was calling us. Um, one of the things that Cindy and I initially, and always, were always impressed with the leadership. We, we said early on that if the leadership was, was as strong and, and as committed to Christ, that all the members would just come alongside that. And that has been true. Um, we have always been impressed with the leadership. Um, and I'm going to try, I had to stop doing this yesterday because I got so emotional, so bear with me. Um, I have down here Robert and Lynn, and I cannot express to Robert and Lynn what they have meant to Cindy and I. Um, they have, I, I would call both of them friends. We've been in small groups with them. And they have been instrumental on the, our outlook of what a Christian marriage should look like, what a Christian home should look like. So I definitely want to make sure that I acknowledge them and say thank you. Um, when we first came, we joined Scott and Karen Bennett's uh, marriage small group. And that was instrumental in helping us to know what a Christ-centered, uh, godly marriage looked like. So that was, we, we certainly appreciate uh, the Bennett's for doing that. So very, very beneficial to us. Um, because of that, we actually opened our home to home fellowship groups um, that were kind of chaotic at sometimes because we actually had more children sometimes than kids. And uh, it, it was very fun. We had a great time, definitely enjoyed it. Um, one of the things here, and I'll try to summarize this point, is I think our church has a very good doctrinal and theological base, but that's a lot of head knowledge that is actually lived out when I call practical theology. This church lives what we believe, and, and I, I definitely appreciate that. Obviously, I'm up here because we're trying to raise money. I think it was yeah, a little bit over two years ago, um, maybe two and a half years ago, uh, Cindy and I were actually up here with the Lusks, and we were speaking to you guys about our adoption process uh, and the fact that we had decided to adopt two children from Uganda along with the Lusks. Um, it was, um, it was a, obviously a, a big change in our life. That two years ago was our 10-year anniversary. So at the time, we were thinking, you know, what can we do to celebrate that? Can we go on a great vacation? Can we put in a pool? Can we do this, that, and the other? Um, a lot of things that, you know, we didn't even know that we could afford. But obviously God definitely changed our vision for that. Um, he, he tested us a lot in that respect. Um, but as far as money, it cost us right around $50,000 to go to Uganda and to bring Tabitha and Eli home. 25,000 of which you guys contributed. And that was over a matter of four months. I mean, it was incredible. Um, the other, it's, it's one of those things that it's a lot of money, but we've not missed it. We have not wanted for anything. We have not needed for anything. God has provided tremendously for us um, in more ways. Um, 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving and full of acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. So Paul says that about himself, but I also say that about me. And I say that because I have such a short memory. And even as I sit up here and, and, and tell you guys how faithful God was to us, uh, with the adoption of Eli and Tabitha and the funds that he raised, sometimes I do feel like an Israelite walking in the desert with a very short-term memory. Even though God has done me so many things, my memory is very short. So I'm glad that I actually had an opportunity to come up here and do this because it reminded me again, once again, of God's faithfulness. And I think everybody in this congregation has a story of God's faithfulness. We just need to remember it um, and, and put our trust in uh, God who is uh, a God of abundance. God has used all of these experiences at uh, HBC to reveal not only my weakness, um, but our sin, but he's also grown us in Christ-likeness. The thing that I'm always impressed with every Sunday is we don't shy away from talking about sin, because that is who we are. We are sinful people. But that sin, understood rightly, magnifies the grace that God gives, us, gives to us every day. And to me, that makes our God even greater. Um, five years ago, about, when we were searching for a church home, I was reading Mark Dever's book, What is a Healthy Church? Because I wanted to have some insight on what we were looking for. And he says in his book that the marks, or the important marks of a healthy church are these. A biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical understanding and church discipline, biblical discipleship and growth, biblical church leadership. I think Jenny mentioned this. We are not a perfect church, but I would contend that we are a healthy church. We're a healthy church that God has placed in Houston, Tennessee to reach many, many sick and lost people. And I think that's the challenge that is before us today is that God has provided for us in many, many ways. And he has also given us a vision uh, and a plan to reach more people for Christ. So I started this talking about children, and here we are five years later. Obviously, our family has grown. Uh, and it is even more important for us as a family to leave a legacy of faith for our children, but hopefully for their children. Um, we love our church. We truly do. Uh, it has blessed us immensely. But I want to remind everybody of what Ephesians 3.20 says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We should remember we are children of a king not a pauper god gives us all things for life and godliness we just have to ask and think bigger so i'm excited about where we're going i hope you guys are as well thanks amen thank you thomas for sharing with us and uh you guys didn't know rigorous interview process that I go through. <clears throat> now you know. A year's worth 
That's impressive. Okay. We are in the midst. We uh, Really what I'm calling us to do from the, from the first till now, we are uh, to, with today, we're over the hump on the other side. Commitment Sunday is October the 11th. And we are in the place where we're simply asking to, uh, to seek and to listen, to ask God what he wants to do and ask God what he wants me to do and uh, to listen to his word and to listen to his voice and to respond as he leads. That's where we are. That's where we're going. We're in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. <coughs> I invite you to turn to Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Very familiar passage. Hear then the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is living and true. We come this morning to bend the knee and to submit ourselves to it. Oh, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that your word would not only come as information, but would have the power of transformation, that you would change us, our hearts and our minds and our lives, into the image of the word that we hear, to the image of Christ, the living one, in whose name we ask and pray. Let me ask you a question at the heart of this passage is this issue of uh, treasures in heaven. So I want to ask you the question, do you believe in heaven? Or most of how you ask, you would answer quickly. Do you believe in life after death? Do you believe in eternal life? I know where your hearts go and what you would say immediately, but then... The follow-up question is this, and it, it's a testing question for us, for all of God's people about all the things that we say we believe, because we say we believe a lot of things. But the follow-up question is, what difference does your believing in heaven make in the way you live now? What is the impact of believing in eternal life, in a life that is longer, bigger, and better than this one? What difference does it make in the way that we think <clears throat> excuse me, in the way that we live now. It's a worldview question. It's a huge question. And how we answer it shapes our lives and shapes the way we live, or it's supposed to. Right? The things that we believe are supposed to shape those things about us, who we are. And see, the problem in the modern world is that we do have a propensity to say that we believe all kinds of things that seemingly have no real impact on the way that we live, or very little impact. That, that disjuncture between what we believe, which is so big and so grand and so rich, and how we live, and the decisions that we make, and the priorities that we have. So I want us to consider this morning, does my lifestyle, and, and including in all of that, does my lifestyle and my spending, in a sense, um, express my faith? I think that's a great biblical question. Does what I say I believe make its way into my living? So let me ask you another question. Do you struggle with materialism? Take a moment, seriously. 
Do you struggle with materialism in your life? I would suggest that we swim in it like a fish swims in water. Right? In this culture, in this time in America, we swim in it. In materialism, like a fish swims in water. And so to think that we don't struggle with it, we have to highly deceive ourselves. Because I know that I struggle with it every day. Every time I have a paycheck in my hand, every time that I'm thinking about the future, every time I'm evaluating a lot of different things, materialism is there. I swim in it. It infects our thinking. Whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, it doesn't matter. It infects our thinking, our goals, our desires, our choosing, our living. It infects us. We swim in it because we are Americans. We are consumers. We consume as a nation right now. We consume more of the world's goods than any other nation in the history of the world. Right? It is shocking in some ways to think about how much we as modern Americans have. We consume experiences and we consume food and we consume the world's material goods on a scale that even most of the world around us, as a, as a country that is, I forget what, I forget the percentages, but we're like 5% of the world's population and we consume like 75% of the world's goods. We are, we are, we swim in it. Like a fish swims in water, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know that we are the wealthiest people in the history of the world. Um, certainly, currently, on our planet. So it would be miraculous if you didn't struggle with it. And so the first thing to recovery is, hi, my name is Robert, and I'm a materialist. And I, you know, I'm on my road to recovery by God's grace, and His Word to set me free from the grip of greed and things and materialism. Let's spend a minute and define it for a second. I think I put this in your bulletin under the first point of your outline. You know, I don't look at, I don't have a physical dictionary anymore. I took it to McKay's and sold it. So I, I Googled my definitions now. So I Googled it. And what I got was some definitions. Here it is. Materialism is a preoccupation with or an emphasis on material objects of comfort. Right? It's, a, it's an emphasis on or preoccupation with material objects and material comforts, the stuff of this world. It's a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than our spiritual values. I would suggest none of us would say that out loud. It's not what we believe. We don't believe that our material possessions and physical comforts are more important than spiritual values. No, we would never say that, but the way we live often says... Robert's definition, I think I put this in there, uh, is this. To live like material things are more real and therefore more important. To live like material things are more real than spiritual things. Right? The spiritual things, the Bible <coughs> tells us that we need to be more concerned, that we should be fixed not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient and pass away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, we live in a material world, and we're material girls and boys. And so it is, it is hard. It is, you got that one. I didn't know how many, you know, we're old enough or young enough. <clears throat> but it is hard to live. Like spiritual things are more real, more true, more important than the material things that I'm engaged with. Using 
our God-given resources, our talents of time and money in ways that are consistent with our faith, the things that we say we believe in, the saving of souls through the atoning work of Christ and his gospel, the advancing of his kingdom in the world, that the king has come, that he reigns at the right hand of the Father, he's building his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it, and he reigns, and he is advancing this, this great work through the gospel, and as he does it, he's, he is discipling the nations and feeding the poor, bringing honor and glory to the name of the one who creates as we become the agents of change in a world that needs to be restored to the glory with which it was created and meant to be. These are the things we believe, but actually to live like those things are true. Because often we actually live as if personal experiences and material goods and comforts are more real and more important than all of that other stuff that we believe. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that there is a real danger that you and I are not living for the right things. Right? That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's speaking to his disciples. Right? He's speaking to his people, those who are following him. Right? And he says, there's a real danger, you guys, that you're living for the wrong things. That's what this passage says. And so he, so he comes and Jesus gives a very clear command. There are two commands in the text. Jesus does give commands in the New Testament, and he says the command comes, do not, imperative voice, the voice of Greek command, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. It's not very safe, secure. It's not very, you know, a sound investment. Don't do it is the command of Jesus to his people. Don't treasure up treasure. Jesus stands not only in the midst, he, Jesus, that, that command in our culture, yeah. Jesus, even in, the midst, even in the midst of his culture, that was countercultural. Because that's the way of the world, is it not, my friends? That's, that's the way of the world. That's the way we do things in this world. It's the opposite of the way the world works. We all know that the one with the most toys wins, right? We all know this, right? This is the world in, in its modus operandi. Right? Its M.O. is to seek and to acquire and to enjoy and then to protect what we have sought and acquired and are enjoying. Right? That is the M.O. of the world. And we all are part of it. We swim in it like a fish swims in water. It consumes a great part of our lives. So let's pause and recognize a few things that I want to make sure that we do have in our heads because, because God is good and we can, we can go too far on this. And I would just simply say this. You, three things you do need to remember to know. Is one is that a certain amount of savings is good and the Bible commends it. Go to the ant, you sluggard, who, who saves up in the right time for the other time. And, you know, a certain amount of savings is good. The Bible doesn't say it's bad. So he's not saying savings is bad. We all know that. He also, we know from the Bible, that wealth is not a bad thing. God gives it. God, it says again and again, God makes wealthy and God makes poor. God makes, gives honor and God takes down honor. God is the Lord. He is sovereign and he is king. And he does give the ability to produce wealth. Some of us have been given the ability to produce more wealth than others. And the truth is, in the world in which we live, it takes great wealth to do great good. 
So wealth isn't bad, and saving some of our wealth isn't bad, and we all know that God intends for us to enjoy his good gifts, so a certain amount of enjoyment of the things that God has given is a good thing. God created the world, and he said it is good. We have taste buds and nerve endings, and and there's stuff that we are meant to enjoy what he has given, so that's not bad. He's not calling us to, right, asceticism. However, those things all being true, Jesus says, somewhere, and you must find it, my friends, I can't tell you where it is, but somewhere there is a line between appropriate saving and accumulating of of wealth and enjoying what God has given, between that and laying up treasures for yourselves on earth. There's a line in there, Jesus says, where we cross, and in one of it, crossing that line, he says it's forbidden to his disciples because he's commanded us not to do it. And so we have to figure out somewhere, you and God, where, where do we cross over that line into materialism, where actually I'm not just honoring God with what he's giving, saving in a very wise and appropriate fashion, enjoying what he's giving, but I've crossed over into materialism where I'm actually living as if these things are more important than the kingdom of God and the king himself. And there is a line in there, in our hearts. It's probably not a dollar amount, but it has to do with what we love. Jesus tells a story that illustrates this exactly. This is the way Jesus does, right? So we get this this thing here. Don't lay up treasures in heaven, where moth and rust, but lay, but, sorry. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust, but rather store up, lay up treasure for yourself, treasures in heaven. And then he tells this story somewhere else. It's in Luke 12. It's in your bulletin. I've put it down. He tells the story of a rich fool, right? Luke chapter 12. It's a story about a man that God blesses, right? And God blesses him with abundance. All of a sudden, his ability to make wealth was the ability to make a lot of wealth. He had had a bumper crop, so to speak, you know, and for us, we have those things. And so he has this bumper crop. And his response was simply, and you can read the passage, I think it says, I, me, and mine, uh, you know, a dozen times. And he says, you know, I I am going to tear down my old barns, and I'm going to make for myself new, bigger barns, and I'm going to say to myself, you know, take it easy. Right, and that's what he says there in your bulletin under the second point. I will tear down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. Jesus just forbid, warned against. You have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is my friends. Do you not recognize this is the American dream? Do you hear that? To to say, to, to be so blessed that I can build bigger and bigger barns and say to myself, self, you have goods laid up for many years. You can take your ease. That's what we all are living for. We're waiting for it. We're hoping for it. It's the dream in which we swim like a fish swims in water. He says it to his soul. And God says to the man, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. The things that you have prepared and set your hope in and your your satisfaction and your desire and your love and your security that you have set it in. He says, today your soul is demanded of you and all of that is a loss. 
Who's going to consume your goods now? The government will get half of it through a death tax, you know, and then who's going to squander it in some other way? And he says, and this is his conclusion, so it is with the one who does exactly what Jesus in 19 says here, do not lay up for the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward his God. Somewhere there is a line at which we start being materialists and not rich toward God, which he says is the goal of life. What is that point? I don't know. He said, but you know, but here's it. The point isn't that wealth was bad. I would, I would suggest God blessed him with abundance. It's not that wealth is bad and that he shouldn't enjoy it. I think he should have enjoyed the fruits of his labors and what God has given him. But what is the point? The point is this. Jesus tells us the point. Luke 12, it's in your bulletin. It's just shortly after the parable. Luke 12, 48, he says this. To everyone whom much is given, much is required. That's the point. The point of the parable was the man, to the man, much was given. And the question is, what did he think about what was given and what did he do with it? He didn't think much was required, but to lay up for himself the American dream. That's what was required of him. To whom much is given, much is required. See, when the man thought about his wealth, he only thought about himself. He didn't think about why does God bless why does God bless? Do you ever ask that question to yourself? Why did God bless Abraham? Do you remember? He told him, I'm going to bless you big. Bless you big. Why did he tell Abraham he's going to bless him? So that you may be what? A blessing. Right? There's a purpose. Why does God bless us? Simply so that a few of us... <coughs> God gives wealth for so much more than personal need and enjoyment. And he does give it to meet our needs and to enjoy the good things he's given. But for oh so much more because he is a God of the whole world. He is a God on the move. He is a God of a kingdom. He is advancing his kingdom and building his church and spreading his gospel. And we're to go so that they would, in, you know, in the four corners of the earth, go and make disciples of all the nations. And God is a God who's concerned about the poor and the hungry and the needy that are around us. God is concerned about many things. He has many priorities. As you read the Old Testament, his, his priority for making sure that you, you don't oppress, but that you give and that you make sure that you're generous and that you love and that you support the work of God. Why doesn't God give wealth? This man, his thoughts were purely self-indulgent. You don't see in here that he said to himself, Self, now your tithe will be that much larger. Now I can give more to God and his, and his kingdom work. And now I actually have a little bit extra. I can support that mission thing that, that has come up. Or now I can give more to the Good Samaritan Fund. So those who are at need and who aren't as abundant as I am right now, but who might be out of a job or just had some medical expenses that are extraordinary, now I can help those people. That's not in his thinking at all. He's not, he's not thinking God's priorities. Because those are the things that make us rich toward God. God blesses the man with riches, but all of his thoughts are about his own kingdom. Not rich toward God. The whole passage, see, this whole passage of Jesus is about seeking heavenly treasure, right? How does somebody do that? 
And, and according to this passage and, and about a dozen other passages from Jesus' lips and Paul's lips, we seek heavenly treasure by giving away earthly treasure. By seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Which is how this passage ends. In the middle of the passage he says you can't serve God in money. And at the end of this passage in Matthew chapter 6 he says seek first the kingdom of God. That's the bookends of the passage. The main goal of life then is not to be rich on earth, but the main goal of life, according to Jesus, is to be rich in heaven. So how do we do that? We live in the world in such a way that we use wealth in God-honoring, Christ-exalting, kingdom-advancing ways. Such that our hearts are rich toward God. And so he says, treasure it up in heaven is the goal of life, to live for heaven, to live with heaven's priorities, to live like heaven is more real, in a sense, than earth, to live like heaven is more important than than earth, that live like the gospel and the kingdom are more important than you name it in your life. And so he calls his disciples to do what? He's calling them to live for the right things. And the text focuses on giving, using perishable stuff to invest in imperishable stuff, the stuff of heaven, the surest investment in the world. And I believe that he says here and elsewhere that we lay up treasure in heaven by giving money away for Christ's sake. Instead of just bigger and bigger, where does that end? Instead of just bigger and bigger, giving our wealth away for Christ's sake, he says, store up treasure for yourselves in heaven. I think Paul says it in Timothy. How does Paul hear Jesus' teaching? He's got uh, this teaching of Jesus floating around. He's taught of Christ himself. First Timothy chapter 6, it's there in your bulletin under the third point. Paul says this, talk, tell the rich in this present age. Let me just, again, remind us, American, that's you. <laughs> you might look around the room and say, oh, he's talking to uh, Bill in the back. No, 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 no. He's talking, we are Americans, my friends the richest people in the history of the world, not by a little bit, but as a nation, as a people, ever, ever, ever. As for the rich in this present age, say to them this, they are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and to be ready to share. Tell those that to whom much is given, much is expected. Tell them this, Paul. Why? Thus, so, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right? Doesn't he say, tell them to do good works and to be generous and to share and to give, to store up for themselves treasures in heaven. You know, when, when we release our hands for the purposes and the priorities of God, there is some way on the balance sheet of heaven, and don't ask me to explain it, but all I know is somehow, some way. My balance sheet of heaven, he says, goes up. When we give this world's treasure in Christ-exalting, God-honoring ways, he says, we are becoming rich towards God. Piper says you can live there in your bulletin. You can live with a view to accumulating valuable things on earth. 
or you can live with a view to accumulating valuable things in heaven. You've got a choice. Jesus says the mark of a Christian is his eyes are on heaven, and he measures all of his behavior by what effect it will have on heaven, on his everlasting joy with God. He's living for the future. And so the resources of time and talent and influence and money are the working materials to create what he calls in some way eternal heavenly wealth. Sounds a little bit like health and wealth gospel. You know, as I'm writing this out, I mean, there's some way in which, you know what, that sounds like a little bit give and grow rich, right? Isn't that what I'm saying? It is what I'm saying. But with this caveat, the Bible always calls us to be rich in the things of God, rich in Christ, rich in eternal life, rich in for the next. See, the health, wealthy gospel says, you know what? God exists in his eternal whatever to make you wealthy now. That's health and wealth gospel. God wants you to be rich, right? God's designed it in this way, and everything he's done is to make you abundant. You're princes on the earth. You should be living it up on those poor slobs. You don't, right? This is the health and wealth. You are the, the chosen people to be rich and wealthy, and God will do it for you. And so this eternal God is serving the building of our kingdom and our wealth. That's the health, wealth gospel. Give and grow rich. God will bless you. But Jesus' gospel says, pour out your wealth here, and you will have riches in heaven. And I believe he says it unashamedly and unabashedly. He says it again and again. He gave one servant one talent, one three, one five. Right? And he says, you know, what are you going to do with those? You know, you know, everybody, we didn't get the same. I might have one talent or three. You might have one. You might have five. I don't know. You know, he gives different ones. But he says, what are you going to do with it? And what he says is you should be investing it and using it now for the master's priorities and purposes because a day will come when we will stand before the master and there will be an accounting and he's going to want to know what we did with it. And then he says to the one servant who took his three and used it in the, to, to please the master's heart, his goals, his priorities, his kingdom, his house. The one who did that, he says to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little and you will now be faithful. You will be placed over much. Right? Heaven, there is, there is a, a reward where he says, that we live for this other world, the kingdom of God. He rebukes those who live to get rich in this world, but he absolutely commands us to pursue by the pouring out of ourselves and our time and our resources for the poor, for the needy, for the broken, for the kingdom, for the temple, for the gospel, for the advancement of his kingdom. And he says, when we pour out ourselves the stuff of this earth, We become rich in the currency of heaven. The Bible calls it faith. You know, this is is absolutely ridiculous in the eyes of the world. If there were people that lived in my neighborhood or even in my family who knew what I did with my money and that you gave it to the church, how much do you give to the church? You know, and and more or you give and you, you know what you could do with that money? That is stupid in the eyes of the world. The Bible calls it faith. The Bible calls it living not for the things that are seen, but for the things that are unseen, which are eternal. 
But it looks silly to the world. There's no doubt about it. What difference does believing in heaven make in the way that you live now? Let me close by simply looking at that last verse then where Jesus says, for, and this is the conclusion, for, therefore, here's the conclusion, because this is, what, this is why I'm telling you don't store it up here, but rather lay up treasures in heaven. Here's why, for, where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. And what is he saying? What is he telling us? He is saying, I want your hearts. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is always saying. If you listen carefully through all of his Gospels and all of his teaching, isn't he always saying, I want your hearts. I want your hearts. I want it done from the heart. I want, I want it right in the heart. I don't just want it pure out here on the outside of the cup. I want it pure in here on the inside of the cup, in the heart. You know, I want honesty not just out here. I want not, you know, I want it. I want your hearts. That's what Jesus' message is over and over again. Love me. Serve me. Right? Bow the knee to me as king and as Lord. Follow me, serve me, honor me. Unless you, you know, unless you hate this life and everything else and love me, you're not worthy of me. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your heart. And when he says here to give your treasures into this place, he's simply telling us to invest ourselves in what God is doing. Connect ourselves to God's bigger story, to his kingdom and to his gospel and to his heaven and to our destiny. Connect yourselves in such a way. Invest yourselves there so that your heart will go there. And then your heart is his. Your heart is mine. Our joy in heaven increases when we exercise our faith like this where we, we are in our faith, we act like he is supremely valuable. He is worthy of anything I could give or do. When we act like that, we show him to be our treasure. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure, then there's some heart work that we need to do this morning. If you don't know Christ as your greatest treasure, one that abides beyond the grave, an eternal treasure as a brother, your captain, your king, your savior, your Lord, your God. If you don't know Christ as your treasure, I would encourage you this morning to put your faith in Christ. Put your trust in him. Give your life to him. And he says you will have treasure in heaven. This life is short. He says, but the day is coming when we will stand with God. And may we be rich toward him, rich toward our God on that day by possessing Christ, who is the treasure of heaven. The truest treasure of heaven. Do you have Christ? Do you know Christ? Is he supremely valuable, lovable, desirable, worthy to you of all that you are and all that you have? Jesus wants our hearts. That's why he says, he's not saying these things to be mean to us. So we sit here this morning and sometimes we hear these teachings of Jesus. And geez, that's a lot or that's hard. Like he just wants, you know, there's this, these, sometimes we can feel Jesus that way. And Jesus is standing over there saying, my friends, I want to give you life and you're clinging to death. You think you've got it in your hand, but it's like sand and it's running out. And the day is coming when our lives will be taken from us. And he says, and you're holding on to sand. It doesn't last. He's not taking from us. He's giving us everything. True treasure. Life that is beyond life. Joy. We cannot live for ourselves and for the kingdom and for Christ at the same time. See, we live for ourselves and we want to live for the kingdom and for Christ. See, the problem is the same resources are involved. 
call is to live for Christ and to store up treasures in heaven. In some ways, Jesus is saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Storing up treasures on earth. Storing up treasures in heaven. It's another layer of heart work. There's no greater joy, there's no greater satisfaction than to know Christ, to love Christ, and to serve Christ with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole body and strength. There's no greater joy and satisfaction in this life than to know him and to serve him and to love him. And he calls us into it, not as a, he calls us into it to satisfy us in the very way we were made and created in his own image to be satisfied. It's another layer of in heart work where we have to dig down and say, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in heaven's riches? Do you believe they're more real? They're more valuable than anything that I have? The sand that I hold in my hand now that's trickling through my fingers is investing in Christ's kingdom a real investment? My friends, arguably, it's the only investment that matters in the end. That only what is done for Christ will last. And here in this passage, Jesus is challenging us what I used to say growing up quite a bit, put your money where your mouth is. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? You say you believe it. Will you live for it? Will we put our money where our mouth is? Pray with me. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Father, we, like fish, swim in the materialism of our age. We live like this world is more real, like its goods are more real, like they're more valuable, like they're more satisfying, like they bring more joy, like they're more important to have than you and your kingdom and your priorities and your purposes and the advancement of all of the things that you love and that you are doing. God, have mercy on us. Oh, unclench our fingers. Loosen and soften our hearts. Fill us with your spirit. Recapture us for yourselves, that we might not lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, but that we might store them up in heaven, that where our treasure is, our hearts will follow, our joy, our passion will follow. For we ask it in Jesus' name.